Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 39, questions and answers. Some of you have been filling out that feedback form, and we're excited to do some Q&A. I know we, there's a lot of questions that get thrown around because we do this as a live stream, but yes, we uh, want this to have the goal of ending as a podcast. Therefore, we don't get to read all of your questions during normal episodes, but we will be reading them here. So those of you that are just listening, of course, you'll understand what the question was and me and Jay's thoughts on the answer. And, you know, that was actually the slogan I missed the most from Radio Shack. You got questions, we got answers. I I thought that was such cool branding. Not enough to save the company from uh, poor business management, but right. at least they get some good branding with that. <laughs> I think the Wiz kids were the best branding ever because you got a free comic book that advertised a Tandy. And th those kids were cool because they had a computer and I didn't. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, I remember that. So, yep. yeah, the someone, I, I don't know this to be true. Uh, you take it for what it's worth. I've seen someone posting it. I think it was on Twitter. Uh, so if it's on social media, I don't necessarily believe it. But someone said that some of the radio checks reopened as independent brands. Uh, independent, they're mm -hmm. still under the same uh, Radio Shack, but they're now an independent. I don't know if this is true, but I thought that's kind of interesting that they could reboot the brand at all. I don't know. I'll see how that goes. It is interesting, but I speak for a lot of people when I say, you know, talk is cheap, but where's the TRS-80? Where's my TRS-80? That's where it all started for me. The history of all of that is fun, but it comes down to what brand are they now versus uh, what? Because in the end, they weren't weren't quite the the tech nerd heaven that they were when I was young. When I was young, it, like Jay says, about the TRS-80 and things like that. But welcome to the Home Lab Show. <laughs> One day we'll do maybe a, uh, what do you call it? Um, we'll do a history episode because, boy, you know, working in tech a long time, there is a history. So uh, here's some more Q&A and feedback you can leave is to whether or not we should do a old history of tech show. Maybe that might be kind of a fun topic as well. So <laughs> or just listening to us talk about random stuff is probably a, a, a show in and of itself. But uh, yeah. we go down the rabbit hole quite a bit and we have to catch each other sometimes and like uh, back to reality, dude, it's time to talk about the thing. Back to reality. Speaking of reality, we have to pay the bills. That's a reality I have to live with. And uh, yeah. paying the bills is right now, Leno, they're our sponsor and have been since the beginning here of the show. We would love to have you sign up with Linode user offer code that's in the link down below. They have been great to work with. Great if you want to get started on it. We actually host a lot of our infrastructure, this podcast that you're listening to included and running on WordPress, which I don't know if WordPress is really worthy of a podcast episode because I don't know that there's a lot of home lab people setting it up, but uh, you can use if you want to get one set up. And as we've done before, you can use the templates they have to get it deployed if you don't want to deploy it yourself over on Linode. And it's a great way using some of the pre-deployed templates they have to kind of figure out how to get something set up, set one up with Linode, use some of their auto approved templates, use our offer code to sign up for Linode. And it's a great way if you don't have a lab yet and don't have the time to set up an entire lab, they can help get it going for you. Uh, we like to thank them for the sponsorship of our show. And like I said, use the offer code down below to get signed up and let Linode know you heard about it from the Home Lab Show. That's, uh, that's important because we're going to be doing some contract renewals for ads and things like that. And Linode may have heard me just say that. So email inbound Linode. So yeah. <laughs> this is the housekeeping we have to do. Some people say we, we wish we didn't have sponsors. If someone could just throw enough money at us to cover sponsorships, there's, there's alternative methods, but as much as that sounds good, it's not, it's a lot harder to do in person. Uh, listen to Leo Laporte discuss, you know, running the twit network. He's very open about a lot of the challenges that come with figuring out ways to set everything up as a subscription. And I think all of us can agree. We've all paid 
too much in subscription fees because it's so confusing now when you want to watch a live stream or listen to something. Do I have to pay a service fee or a subscription? I don't know. <laughs> and I, I think I, I, I speak for both of us when I say all of you out there that are contacting us like every single week asking us to um, add a sponsorship for really shady Windows product keys from God knows oh. where. We're not interested. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Fun There's time. that too. Yeah, that's that's actually funny. It's weird, you know, being on this side of the house um, with me and Jay both being content creators. We definitely get approached by all kinds of crazy things, especially those product keys people. So <laughs> every week, every single week. Yeah. All right. Lots of Q&A here. Um, what's the first question we're going to start at, Jay? I'm going to start with an easy one because it's easy um, because, well, I don't know. Um, I think that's part of being a content creator, at least in my opinion, is that you admit when you don't know something because nobody likes it when, yes, I know everything about that thing and, and I'm the expert. Um, about ButterFS, I am not an expert. Admittedly, I um, actually haven't looked at it yet. It is on my list. It's one of those problems where there's so many things on my list that I want to check into because I just love all of this stuff so much. But unfortunately, there's only 24 hours in the, in the day and we were... Um, sent a comment about, um, you know, ButterFS. And that's one of those things that I want to get into really bad. And that the snapshots, if I'm understanding the comment correctly, is that it's based on ZFS's design. I don't know. I'm, you know, I, I haven't looked into that at all yet, but we get a, I bring this up because we get a lot of um, questions and feedback about ButterFS asking us to do more content about it. And until I have a moment to do my own video on that and dive into it myself, uh, there's really little I could do. But I just bring it up to let people know that it's going to happen. I don't know when. I don't know what episode it's going to be. Um, I think it's safe to say it'll most likely happen next year, um, which is just coming up. But, you know, that's, you know, 12 months, so it doesn't narrow it down too much. But it is something I want to look into. And if it is something I think might um, fit an episode, maybe I'll pitch it and see if it lands. Yeah. ButterFS is definitely pretty cool. I mean, I, I give it, someone once called me the cult of ZFS time. You're falling into that. And I don't like monoculture. I think we we are better served by a diversity of different tools. Um, but unfortunately, ZFS is one. It's really popular. It's really well developed and a lot of effort has been put into it. And of course, my favorite tools that I use are frequently built with it, such as the TrueNAS and FreeNAS platforms. So yeah, I'll admit to knowing way more about ZFS than ButterFS. So. Yeah, but, you know, the interesting thing about that is, you know, I understand why people might think that, you know, you're, that someone might be biased towards a specific technology. The reality of it is that, honestly, it's just down to hyper-focus. Like, if I check out a movie, and I love the movie, by the way, the new Spider-Man is amazing, um, I have to tell people about it, right? Um, just kind of, you know, share in that love of something with other people. If I'm checking out a product or a piece of software and I just love it, I have to tell people about it. And it's not biased so much as it is like being overly enthusiastic, I think is a better way to describe it. But when it comes to these things, like I mentioned, we don't have time to go through everything, although we want to, because I guarantee you, if um, something was to happen in the universe to where we now have 48 hours in the day, that'd be really cool. Um, I, I would totally get to all these things a lot faster. But at the end of the day, um, if we're already using something, it's super easy to make content about that. And when it comes to storage, that's really hard because if you think about it, I have terabytes of data and to really give Butter, ButterFS a chance, I would really, in an ideal world, just want to copy everything on my ZFS stack, 
over to it to, to you know, give it the same use case and the, and the same test. But that's a lot of work when you're just syncing data over and testing snapshots and all the things you normally do. Um, the production time for a video on that, it, you know, takes longer. So that's why it hasn't happened yet. And some of these, in some of these cases, um, there's like 50 solutions for one problem. And which one do we go with? Yeah. And it's also the, the nervousness, even though, you know, three, two, one, follow all the proper backup procedures, moving terabytes and terabytes of data is yep. a lot and risking all of it because it's still time. It, uh, cool. I have it all backed up off site. I still have to restore that somehow. If I, if I moved everything to ButterFS and it failed, now right. I have that problem. And I say, move everything because I can't just move one thing. I have replication between three different ZFS servers. If I change one of them to ButterFS, ButterFS, to my knowledge, doesn't replicate to ZFS. Therefore, it's a big changeover. So, yep. And I could do a tutorial about it pretty easily by just copying a handful of ISO images to it and, you know, just making a snapshot, restoring it just to, just to show people how it works. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I could give it a recommendation because I don't feel like that's enough for me to say, yes, I recommend this. It's perfect. I just tried it with a few ISO images. I mean, that's barely even a um, adequate test. So um, there's there's a lot of interesting back and forth that we talk about off camera before we decide to do any particular piece of content. Um, but ButterFS is something that fascinates me. So I really think it's going to happen. So I'll let you guys know when. Yep. On to the next question here. Um, I have a NetGate SG1100. I love it and I want to play. What services are the easiest to move off my firewall without losing functionality of my network or making it more difficult? All right. The moment you start moving the services from a nice integrated single place, it's going to get more difficult, but it's going to get more fun. My yes. my version of fun. Uh you can take and set up things like port mirrors if you wanted to dive into like a security tool or a SIM tool where you monitor all the traffic and start digging into it. Um, it's easier, of course, when it's integrating a firewall, but as you start breaking these things off, it can be interesting. Pi-hole is a popular project. PF Blocker is the replacement, so to speak. So PF Blocker is great running on PF Sense, but some people like some of the features in, as they should because Pi-hole goes a little bit more with the way it has the web interface and it's it's a slick system it's got pretty graphs in it and things like that and it has extended functionality so that's like one of the easy ones you could probably break off and set up a pie hole um due to and don't ask me why um due to indiscriminate ways that youtube determines things pie hole is a taboo word and I, i've learned on uh YouTube. YouTube doesn't like the discussion of it too much. It seems to be mixed. They hated it, then they liked it, and there's some people that got some good videos on it now. It's, to me, a, a hot-button topic, so don't ask me to do a video on that. I have in the past. I won't, and again, that's probably the easiest one you can move off of your uh, PFSense firewall. Um, other things, I don't know. Uh, squid filtering, I don't even recommend you have it on your firewall, but if you wanted to play with like uh, proxying, you could do that. HA proxy, though, doing a reverse proxy for things, that's absolutely something. I think Jay probably may even have a few videos on how to do reverse. Do you have a reverse proxy video with Nginx, Jay? Not yet. Um, okay. I mean, I do have that used as part of other tutorials, but not as the namesake of the tutorial. And what's hard about that reverse proxy situation is um, it's really hard to give people a you know thorough explanation of it that, that'll work for most people because depending on the app that you're proxying to, there could be different Nginx rules, for example. And it's really hard to find a balance of, you know, you're always going to need this. And, and there's different ways to tackle this. 
But if I was to do a proxy in front of NextCloud, that may not work as well um, for WordPress or vice versa, depending on what you're running, or especially if you're running something like AWX, which is another thing I get asked about a lot. Um, proxying to that is a different thing entirely. Um, I had a music server one time, add a proxy to that differently. So it's, you know, it's really hard to find the balance of when to use one option versus another and how to structure a tutorial around that. But once I figure out a good uh, middle ground, I would love to tackle that. Yeah. Um, other things, I can't really think of too many other things you would take off of for the firewall. I mean, hand building a firewall and eliminating altogether is a way more complicated task. I've, I've actually right. known a few people have done it, but they realize that there's a reason that things like PFSense exist to help make managing firewalls in, in the big picture of things easier. I think it's a great learning experience. I don't discourage people who want to learn, uh, but if it all depends on how what level of network engineering. For the most part, the functions that stay on the firewall are probably best suited to, generally speaking, standard. Now, once you move into the enterprise network, these are generally separate functions anyways. Firewalls yeah. do routing, and then proxies do filtering, and uh, DNS is usually handled, generally speaking, by the Active Directory systems that are integrated uh, within that network. So, yeah, I would uh, say, in my opinion, if you're anytime you're dealing with a network home lab project, that is when you're probably wanting to dedicate a weekend to it. And in some ways, that might be a little bit easier now for some people, because depending on where you are in the world, you might be quarantining, you may not be. Um, but if you have like, a weekend where, especially here in Michigan, when it's the winter time, regardless of pandemic or not, there's not much to do. There's not much going on. So yeah, I'm going to dedicate this weekend. That's exactly what you should do for a networking project. I don't think I've ever had, regardless of how experienced I was at the time, a network project that was quick. If you're implementing VLAN, <laughs> subnets, um, moving firewall rules, I guarantee you things will break in ways that you did not anticipate. It's just the way it is. It doesn't mean you're not good enough. It doesn't mean that you're not a good networking person. It means that you just got hit by reality. That's just the way it is. So it's not something, oh, I'm just going to spend an hour and move my firewall rules off. Just spend the weekend as a network project and redo your networking because things are going to be broken. The Plex server is not going to be working. People won't be able to get to it. Your phone will be going off if you share that with someone else and they can't watch the last three Matrix films. That's just <laughs> the way it goes, right? Um, it, it's just a long process, but it's a fun one. And I've always just dedicated a weekend when I have nothing going on. This is the project I'm going to do. When I implemented VLANs, for example, that was a weekend project. When I switched from having my manual firewall set up with IP tables to PFSense, that was a weekend project. So um, I'm not saying that to scare anyone. Um, I think a certain subset of our audience uh, might get excited by that. Weekend project? Really? That sounds great. When do when can I start? I'll, I'll start this weekend. It's almost Friday anyway. <laughs> so that's that's when you should do it. But it, it, it's a lot of work, but it's fun because you'll you know solve real networking problems and you'll learn a lot during the process every single time. Yep. And I, I'll uh, I have not had a chance to have videos on this, but the good news is they have, which is Security Onion. Um, there's you can dive into Security Onion, which is a full open source uh, SIM tool to get into things. I don't know. It's eventually once I have my new studio built and I have more time in one area to focus on something because it's so in depth. I may do a long, long, deeper video on Security Onion. I've used it, using it, and I think it's great, but it is a lot to get set up. So, um, 
Let's see. Moving on to the next one. Hopefully it's enough stuff. Oh, uh, but VPN, obviously you can do the on or off the firewall too. We'll just throw that one yep. in there, but that's, I've got plenty of videos on VPN. Um, can we get an episode on live patching is kind of something we talked about and covered yep. in Linux patch management episode 32. So I think we covered that. Uh, do you have some more thoughts on that Jay for live patching? Yeah, I'll just give some summary thoughts because um, I don't really feel like it's a, a topic that could that could actually make an entire episode because it would be over too quickly. There's too many um, asides to deal with. Um, so it's not quite as simple. I mean, it is simple and it's not, but it's just not an episode's worth. But in, in short summary, um, live patching is great because you could essentially just, you know, live patch the kernel on your Linux server. That's what it actually means. So you could have that CVE fixed potentially without rebooting. Now, rebooting for us in Home Lab is not really as big of a deal as it is for enterprise because at most we're going to upset the kids when the Plex server is down. So what? They can they can wait. <laughs> you know, I have a patch app to apply. And that's not really a big deal. But at the same time, um, I think even though reboots aren't um, as egregious to us, it's still annoying to us and we still don't like it all the same. And when you get into this, the problem is that the Linux kernel itself supports live patching. That's why we could do this. But it they don't build the interface through which you inject those live patches. For that, um, you're often dealing with a license agreement or a support agreement that costs money. And at that point, is it really worth it? Now, you could get, a, get around this by using um, Canonical's live patching utility if you use Ubuntu at all. Um, that's free for up to three systems before you have to pay for it. So right there, you have that ability. Um, there's TuxCare. You know, they are a sponsor of my channel, but, you know, I actually like them a lot and I use it because they they facilitate this for you and they're cross-distribution because with Canonical service, that's Ubuntu only. If you are a Red Hat person, you pay for that, which is actually a lot of money. Um, that's only for your Red Hat systems. And then other distros have their own. So the, so the only one that I'm aware of personally that is cross-distribution is TuxCare. But then the other side of this is that that's going to patch your kernel. If you want to patch, um, you know, like shared libraries, you could still need a reboot um, just because of a shared library, not because of a kernel. So, it's, you know, live patching isn't always going to defeat the reboot for you. And then if, you, if you're like me and you really, really want live patching on desktops because you don't want to even reboot your computer... Well, what happens when your NVIDIA driver gets updated and you kind of have to reboot, otherwise things are wonky? Um, live patching is great, but it's not as um, consistent as I would like it to be. It's more or less a very specific use case for it. Um, I would say just use the free canonical service if you're using Ubuntu. If not, just turn on unattended upgrades and uh, schedule it to reboot while you're sleeping anyway. And that's probably the easiest way to solve it. Yeah, hopefully that covers that aspect of it. It's, you know, one thing I will say um, is the live patching is less of an issue to me, partly because, like, even with my uh, forum server, I think the reboot time, because I'm, you know, we're, it's so fast. Like, it's just not something I think about. It's not like Windows where I go, oh, man. I'm going to reboot the server, cross my fingers. It's going to take a long time. A lot of the Linux, especially in a virtual machine instances for stuff I run, the reboot time is like 12 seconds, 13 seconds. It's so, with modern systems, it's so fast. It's something I just think a lot less about. Because by the time right. someone goes, I think it's, you know, a problem with Tom's forums, F5 a couple of times, oh, never mind, they're back up and running. <laughs> <I'm> like, 
Yeah, I mean, you yeah. could put a banner up or something like you, like that if you wanted to. You know, the maintenance period is whatever the hour is or something like that and have it reboot then. Um, I just don't see it as much as big of a deal. But I do think it's really weird that in 2021, rebooting after updates is still something that we have to do. I mean, if you were to ask me 10 years ago, I would have predicted that is not something we would be doing right now, that um, beyond kernel live patching, we'd be live patching all the things or maybe things would be containerized so well that um, you could, you know, reboot them and nobody would notice because one container takes over. You have some kind of load balancing that's easier and easy, easy approachable. But that's not what we have today. Um, it's still a little chaotic. Live patching is a step in the right direction. But I mean, it's just not perfect. It's good. But I wouldn't start shelling out money for it unless you have a business case, in my opinion. Yeah. So uh, the next one is interesting. And I think this is maybe uh, we'll dive into this because there's some questions we don't have. And there's some questions. There's some answers you have on this. Which Firewalls should I use on Linux? And I use for, you know, like Ubuntu is a great example. UFW works great. It's easy to control. It's easy to manage. Um, I know there's other ones out there and I have not dove deep into it. I usually just go with what the distro recommends, but I know there's going to be people who have uh, edge cases, use cases that may exceed the capabilities and functionality of whatever's built in, which is why there's competing ones. Um, me and Jay have never really dove deep into why I would swap the firewall out to be a different one, because that's what kind of what the bigger question is, which is the best one to use uh, on my Linux distribution. The one you configure though, and that you configure well is going to be uh, the most important one. Because if you don't know something very well, and this is where people I've often find themselves getting in trouble is when they don't know a product very well and they misconfigure it and leave things open. Yeah. That sometimes can cause uh, quite a, quite a bit of controversy. And this is specifically talking about, the firewalls on your Linux system itself. This isn't talking about using it as a gateway, using it as a router, but just that you should take the time to properly configure and think about the connections, especially if you're doing a secure server. And I'll give an example. The security I have on my servers, and this is how you can help prevent lateral movement. So several of my servers are on the same subnet. And what if one of those servers got cracked? What if someone got into one of them? This would be terrible. But to prevent lateral movement, the servers actually aren't allowed to talk to each other because there's not ever a reason that they are. And if there is a reason they are or have a specific thing they need to talk to, then there's an allow rule for only that other thing they need mm -hmm. to talk to. For example, I have sync thing on some of my servers to constantly be synchronizing data that's generated for offsite backups. So I have an allow for sync thing. What they are not allowed to do, for example, because I use reverse proxies, to control the web interface on them. If I'm running something or hosting something that talks to a reverse proxy, it is limited in scope by the firewall to only talk to the proxy. That way, from a lateral movement standpoint, you can't go on one of my servers and talk to the web interface on an adjacent server because what if there was some flaw in, a, you know, in the web server version and that's where you want to start your attack, trying to get to that login page? Well, you can't. Right. You can't launch it from an internal server. So it's still important to, uh, most important, I should say, to completely understand the firewall, have all the rules configured and lock them down accordingly to only, you know, principles of least privilege. What does it need privilege access to? The reverse proxy. What else? Nothing. You know, for testing purposes, I turn it off when I was, you know, trying to figure out why something wasn't working. Then when you're done, you lock them back down. So my advice for most of the firewalls and maybe we'll, in a future topic, we'll dive into this a little more. It's just thinking about when you lock down the server, 
does that port need to be available? Does, you know, SSH is common on a local subnet, but does it need to be extended outside of there? Or is there specific machines that you are using for management? Maybe you have a jump box or maybe you're using, you know, something to um, a bastion setup. And the only thing it should talk to then is the bastion service. Now you've limited in scope the ways that methodology. So that's the most important takeaway from firewalls is they should be used to help limit the scope and access to something. I don't think it's as important unless you're doing something really large scale where you're concerned about, well, should I swap out the UFW simplistic system that they have over here in Ubuntu with something more advanced? Well, first, you have a use case that exceeds what the current built-in system can do because it is fairly robust. So that's kind of my opinion on it. What do you think, Jay? Well, I agree with everything you said. Um, and I'm also going to add to it that um, when we start talking about firewalls, there's so many different angles that the person asking the question could be coming from because everyone has his or her own reason for running a home lab. It could be because they want to get that certification. They want to you know, work on learning something that they use at work, or maybe they just like it. Maybe they're just having fun with this. So the question was asking, um, you know, IP tables, EB tables, ARP tables, NF tables, firewall D, UFW, you know, about all these different things. Um, part of that it, that makes that confusing is that some of those are front ends to the underlying firewall system. But the bigger question is, why are you interested in that? Um, because that really determines the answer. Because if you're just wanting to know which one is more secure, that's a different conversation than someone asking about, well, I heard Ubuntu is switching the underlying firewall system to something else in the next release, and I just want to stay ahead of that. Or it could be somebody that is just so fascinated by Linux, they just want to learn these different technologies because they want to you know, immerse themselves in Linux knowledge. There's all kinds of different reasons, and that determines how we go about answering this question. Because when I think about all these different firewall technologies, um, I generally tend to keep it simple. Um, I did used to use IP tables manually at one point, but then went to PFSense. So for me, you know, I had my fill of learning it and I learned it fairly well. I was satisfied. Okay, I just, I'll just take a PFSense going forward. But yeah, why do you want to learn it? And that's why it's hard to cover all these because if even if we did a whole video about it, it's going to serve one subset of the audience that are using it for that reason. But then Everyone else that's curious about firewalls for a completely different reason, uh, they're not going to be satisfied by that episode. So it's it's really great because there's so many different technologies and there's different ways to approach it. But I do agree with you that it's all about um, does your current solution, um, is it fitting your use case? Are you changing just because you want to try something new and learn something new? Or do you have any reason to feel that your current solution isn't good enough? Um so that's a just a big rabbit hole of of a conversation, but I would just summarize it by agreeing with you. You know, it depends on the use case and the um, capabilities of what you're using right now, whether or not it fits your needs. Absolutely. Um, the next question is about overlay networks. Um, the overlay networks I've covered is going to be uh, zero tier, Nebula, and Tailscale. And overlay networks is a really interesting and I think going to be going in the future, a very popular topic. I think overlay networks is the best name for them. They also title themselves a software defined networking, which it is, but SDN is a broad topic. That means lots yeah. of things. Overlay networks is a little bit more specific and specifically what the concept is, is we have a network adapter on our system. There 
for why don't we add another network adapter that creates another overlay network. And what this means is you, you can have in all of them work essentially in a very similar principle. You have this extra network adapter that shows up that's part of a network, but it's not. It's all part of a VPN style network. So if me and Jay, who are completely in separate locations, decide we want to join an overlay network, we each have our main adapter's IP, and then we have an IP that is in the same subnet where me and Jay can share things as if we're on the same network. And then you start popping nodes everywhere. The nodes are independent of geography and location of where they are. That's the same premise the way all these overlay networks work. It's a really great concept because now instead of having to establish a VPN and that moves and I'm at a different IP address for each one of these, the way it works is I can just move around any device anywhere, swap networks, and they all connect to some type of beaconing public server that's, determines where all of these devices are. So right. Nebula and all those are great tools to use. Nebula is fully open source. I've actually become friends with the developer of that. I did a video on it. It's really cool. It's very, very DevOps focused. It's uh, actually what they use to manage all the servers at Slack. So does it scale? Yes. Why was it invented? Because nothing scaled quite to the size that Slack as a company was. Um, so talking with Ryan and the team that developed it was really cool. Uh, and that's how I based my video on it. I just thought it was a great product. It's fully open source. So it's one of them, but it's one of the harder ones. The way other side of easier to use is going to be tail scale is super easy to use. The clients are open source, but the back end is closed source. That is the web management portal. And it seems goes to zero chair. They have a series of open source clients, but the management platform that's not obligated for you to use, by the way, is all done in a um, closed source type thing. So they, it's all stuff. You, it's fun to play with. It's definitely a great concept in networking. Um, and it it's really solves a lot of problems when it comes to just having devices everywhere. We've seen actually a lot of commercial use for things like this, where companies deploy lots of IOT devices and they just tie them all to a overlay network so they can monitor all the devices, see all the devices, communicate with them, and they don't have to deal with whatever happens. Someone changed their internet provider. doesn't matter. The IoT device went from network A to network B in the same company. It's a completely different subnet. doesn't matter. We always have the overlay network. So yeah, they're yep. definitely really cool. Uh, they're a lot of fun to play with. The tail scale specifically, because it's a pretty well-funded, it's still kind of in startup mode. One of the things I recommend in tail scale is look for their blog post on NAT it is the best lesson in NAT traversal you'll ever get. It is probably the most singular place I've seen such well-documented. They describe how they get around NAT and how they deal with NAT issues, but it's wild the level of detail they went into to describe all the different things of how NAT traversal works. It's actually a great education uh, in something I like about TailScale. They've dumped a lot of data out there that's just very educational for those of you that want to understand network engineering better because it's all problem, uh, problem we encountered, how we solve it, and you're like, I didn't know Nat could do that. I didn't know Nat traversal worked that way. Oh, that's how UDP hole punching works. And so it's actually kind of a fun dive into uh, becoming a better network engineer as well. So that's my mm -hmm. thoughts on overlay networks. Um, big fan of them. I think there's a, uh, I've actually done consulting with some VC firms that contacted me because they see my videos on it. And they go, you seem to know a little bit about this stuff. And so I've actually had some projects that I consulted. They just want to know who to throw money at. That's that's my uh, relationship with VC firms. Hey, Tom, we always want to know, uh, is this a cool product or not? Which the weirdest phone calls I get are those, but it was fun. Yeah. nonetheless talking to him about it. And then I'm like, you guys watch my YouTube video on it. And <laughs> I'm obviously excited about them. I think they're pretty cool. So, yep. Yeah, they are. I like them. I like overlay networks a lot too. And I think it, 
it gives us capabilities that we didn't know we needed. And in my opinion, when I first heard of this technology, I'm like, well, that's how I thought networking works until I figured out and learned how networking works. And it's not how it works. But I, I, when I was like knowing nothing about networking at all, when I was first starting, I kind of envisioned it like this, but it's it's not that. Um, it's, it, But it is easier for a lot of people. Like um, at one point, you know, my son comes to me and, and wants to have uh, people or his friends access the Minecraft server we use in the house. So here I am, you know, trying to set it up for public availability, which I did, and creating firewall rules to make it so that, you know, they can't do lateral movement. And that was that was a, you know, good hour project there. But then nowadays it's like, hey, how can I have my friends play Minecraft with me? It's like, oh yeah, just, uh, you know, install zero tier and, and have them install the same thing and, and I'll show them how to do it. And then I don't have to mess around with my firewall or anything like that. It just works. Uh, I think it's really great. I don't necessarily know if I can consider it software defined networking though. I think it does fit, but that's one of those terms that's like DevOps, where you ask somebody, what is DevOps? Or and <laughs> people that question and you get 10 different answers, right? Um, yeah. In my opinion, um, I think of overlay networks as a network abstraction and software defined networking as the virtualization um, layer of networking where you have a cloud provider and you're um, creating a, you know, a router, a, you know, a firewall appliance that, that all exist in software that it's a software equivalent of an entire network layout in a company, whereas um, overlay networks are kind of like built on top of the network you already have or that runs off of the network that you already have. So it's almost like it's a virtual second network card on your computer in addition yeah. to your main one. Um, just to kind of paint that picture for someone, It's that's kind of how it works. And I really like the idea and the concept a lot. I do agree it's going to get even bigger because I remember when the only way to do this was to pay like AT&T or whoever, like something like $1,200 a month. Oh, for MPLS a, for a yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> and that was out of reach for everyone. Like we were all thinking, man, wouldn't it be nice if we had a like some kind of a, a WAN link between our two houses so we could just play LAN games or something like that? That'd be so cool, but we can't afford to do that. And now it's free and it's easy. Um, I love that. I just love that about yeah. it. It's definitely it's one of the cooler features. We're gonna we're gonna see a lot more in it. I'm positive uh, 22.2 will bring us more talk about that. Mm -hmm. Now, something that's been around for a very long time, and I I've never really brought it up as a topic, but Jay probably has more to say about it than I do. Is RSS feeds now for the most part, like the way we set up the podcast, we do offer RSS feeds. They're completely publicly available. Um, we have the links on our site, and it's a convenient way to download and grab podcasts. And this is before. It really any news stream or any stream of information. I mean, this goes back to like the slash dot days and uh, well, I mean, slash dot still exists, but it's not as popular as it was, but uh, RSS has always been a really cool way to get this. And I used it back in the day of NNTP or the news groups. Cause I'm old school, man. I've been on the internet since we used NNTP more than we used worldwide web. That was my earlier days of doing it. Mm -hmm. um, I actually used to use Thunderbird for the longest time. I don't remember what I used before Thunderbird um, for RSS feeds. I don't do as much with them as I used to. I think Jay still uses them a little bit more, but they are definitely a great way to aggregate a lot of information together from a multitude of sites without having to deal with those pesky people reading ads and things like that. Cause it kind of gives you like all consolidated headlines to uh, pull in some of the articles and things like that. Matter of fact, I, I, I can date myself even more. I used to have an RSS 
a tool that worked on my Palm Pilot in the earliest days of it. It was like Iris. That's a little bit different, but it would uh, aggregate news sites, filter it, and pull it all into my Palm Pilot because Palm Pilots didn't have internet. But when you dock them, the application that pushed the data to them could pull it. It's the same kind of um, uh, c complexity yep. to it, but it's really slick. But uh, go ahead and what do you, I think you had a tool you're using I hadn't heard of for uh, managing RSS. I do. I, I, I have to say, I love. I absolutely adore RSS. It is one of my favorite things on earth because it's just so great that you could have the news that you want to read fetched for you in one place rather than, oh, I think I'm going to go to this website for this news and I'm going to go to this other website for this. You could have all those pulled into one source. And I feel really sad that RSS is not as popular. I don't think it ever truly hit mainstream. It kind of came close though because it was used a lot at one point, but it never hit mainstream and it seems like the usage is going down. And I don't like that because, um, you know, everyone now, you know, they're just going on their um, smartphone and getting news that way, which is okay. But I, the reason why I like RSS is because um, I can use a service that can synchronize and I don't have to worry about like when I was using Thunderbird and, you know, that for RSS, the issue would be like, oh, I have, I read the article on my desktop. It doesn't show that I read it on the laptop. I may not remember that I already read it. Oh, yeah, I already read that. And then I have to, you know, mark them all read manually because they don't sync. Um, I stopped using Thunderbird for that. And I started using something called Tiny Tiny RSS, which is a hosted app that you can use. You can throw it in a Linode instance or a virtual machine where a Raspberry Pi even doesn't matter. And um, what you do is you could have you could visit it from a web browser on all of your computers, read your news. If you mark something red on one, any other computer you read your news on will also show it marked as red. If you star an article because you want to read it later, it'll be starred on all of them. And then you could hook it into you know desktop clients and phone clients. I have one on the phone that actually syncs to it as well. So regardless of where I am or what device I'm using, my red articles are synced. That's great. And that's why I love it. Now, the reason why I haven't done an, a video on Tiny Tiny RSS is because I'm not sure if I want to. I mean, I do want to, but when I look at the community, I look at, um, and I'm not gonna name names or anything like that. Um, if you, if When I was looking up an answer to a question that I had, I ran into a problem setting it up, and this has happened a few times where I'm Googling for something, and I'll often land on the Tiny Tiny RSS community for the product, and I see users getting outright attacked, like um, a certain person or one of the developers is just so rude to everyone that, that's why I never did a video on it, because if people have a problem, obviously they're going to Google it or they're going to ask in the comments or they're going to Google it. And then they might actually see how um, rude the community is. I hope that's not the case now. Um, it's been a number of months since I checked into this, but it's kind of turned me off of doing a video about it. But at the same time, I really think that RSS needs a renaissance. It needs to come back. We need to push it. Um, it's so much more useful now that I think it's ever or ever could have been in the past if we would just give it another chance. I think um, it's actually a really amazing piece of technology. Yes, it's old, but sometimes the oldest technology will gain prominence. Look at ARM, for example. That's not a new platform. That's not a new technology, but you know everybody's talking about it as Intel continues to make people angry. Sometimes an older technology is exactly what we need in the present. And I think RSS is that. So uh, maybe something else will come along and I'll talk about that in a video or I'll find, I'll find some way to um, do a video about something related to RSS. But I just love it. I just love synchronizing news, which is 
really important for a content creator to keep track of read articles and unread articles because I like to keep up to date, like I'm sure all of you guys do too. So um, I'll see if it can you know land in a video in some kind of way in the future. Yeah. Um, the last and question, uh, well, actually, no, not yet. There's two more, but, um, one of them though, I want to address this one because I know there's been like two or three comments in the live stream that are all related to this is all about purchasing hardware for your home lab. <laughs> this is, uh, yep. so I, I thank you very much, Jeff from craft computing for diving into this topic and explaining it. My answer is. I don't really buy a lot of HP servers. Jeff does have some HP servers, but he has like a long video that he explains which HP servers require licenses, which ones don't, and all the confusion around it. Um, so I'm going to defer to, I. if you just type in Jeff Craft Computing HP server, you'll find it. It's really easy to find. Um, I've always avoided HP servers because some of them, they, they've decided to hide some of the software updates behind paywall, paywalls. The other thing weird about HP servers is I've noticed just a lot of them uh, take forever, like an inordinate amount of time with blank screens from the time you turn them on until the time something happens. Or they sit at what you think is a locked up ILO screen, which is the ILO uh, lights out management tool, just sits there, just chilling for a little while. Uh, I've never been a fan of HP servers because of that. Dell, yeah. on the other hand, easy to find parts for. Easy. I'm not saying Dell's not quirky. I'm saying Dell is very predictably quirky. I know exactly right. what to get, and it's easy to find on their, uh, on eBay. It's easy to find parts for them. Dell's uh, model number tracking, go in there and you know, drop in the, the service tag number and know everything about that server. Dell's kind of been my go-to and also Supermicro. Specifically, there's a there's a site. I'm going to double check before I uh, make this claim. Lab Gopher. Make sure this site still is up and running. Yes, it is. Labgopher.com is a site for uh, perusing eBay and organizing. Instead of having to search through descriptions, it'll help narrow down different things that are for sale on there. Uh, so eBay is still for your budget minded, not production. Not, I want to buy something used and use it for that. I'll recommend one of the refurbishing companies such as tech supply direct. Uh, we've used them many times in the past. I've talked about them on my channel, but if you're looking for, you know, budget home lab, I'm just getting started. Obviously if you can find someone local so you can save on shipping. Awesome. Not, an option for everybody. Not everybody's lucky enough to have a recycling company within a few miles of their house uh, so they can go grab stuff. But if you go on eBay and you type in things like someone specifically earlier in here asked about buying a NAS server. So if you type in like free NAS or true NAS in eBay, you'll find a lot of companies and one of them is going to be um, Unix surplus. They have yep. lots of stuff that is already figured out for you has compatible hardware for true NAS because they know what works with your NAS. They know who they're selling this to. They're selling to someone who wants to build a NAS. And by the way, if it's compatible with true NAS, it's probably compatible with many other NAS software because it means that the system is set up in a JBOD, just a bunch of disks, and is able to pass through and give control to the operating system. So that's it's actually search what you're looking for. There's probably, I haven't looked in a while. There might even be someone posting XDPNG um, type stuff. The good thing about XDPNG though, if you're looking for like building a hypervisor with that, is if you go to the hardware HCL for Citrix hardware compatibility list um, for Citrix Zen server, there's a list of servers that are supported. They'll have like general models from Dell, HP, and other companies that will also help you with compatibility so you know that it's there. My word to the wise specifically for the XCPNG folks is if it says Broadcom, 
expect to replace that network interface. Broadcom is among the worst of the network offenders. I have people asking me really strange questions like, hey, I get really slow performance. What can I do for Broadcom? I send them to a thread. I have in the XCP and G forums on this and they go, yeah, but what can I do to tune it? And I'm like, please note that thread is all about why even the tuning parameters don't work <laughs> with some of those. Uh, Intel network cards are generally your friend. I believe Mellanox are right up there too for being friendly for both NAS and hypervisor yep. storage. And uh, same goes for like VMware. There's um, compatibility lists for your if for those of you that are doing stuff in VMware. I don't know, does Proxmox have a, a hardware compatibility list or is it Debian and it's just as happy on most things? Um, they might have a compatibility list, but I, I've always focused on the fact that it's Debian and Debian is Debian. The nice thing uh, is Debian is Debian is that kind of answers a lot of it. Debian is relatively uh, robust when it comes to compatibility. So, yep. So on my end, I have some random tips here about about this, some of which I mentioned before. But I think at this point, you know, we've got a lot of new uh, people in our audience. So, um, you know, I should summarize this again just to kind of make sure um, you know, I get these points across because I've learned some lessons the hard way. Um, the first thing is to use what you have. If you have a desktop in your closet, it doesn't cost you any money to pull it out. It doesn't cost you anything but your time to pull it out, install something on it, install Linux on it. If you're never going to use it anyway, I mean, why not at least try? Yes, it might be old. Yes, it might be slow and it might not be that great, but it's just sitting there. Why not give it a shot? You might be surprised. You might actually get some good performance out of it. Maybe that could be a server. Maybe it only has two gigs of RAM. Okay, that's not great for a hypervisor, but it might be great, good for a hypervisor if um, you're running nothing but containers. You could actually get more out of it that way. So you can make good use of the hardware that, that you have. The second thing is if you need or want to buy something, never do it out of impulse. And I'm using myself as an example here because I do this all the time. And I never learn my own lesson. Don't be like me. Like, I get it in my head, like, I want to do a thing. I'm going to do that thing today. It's happening today. I will obsess over it. It's going to happen no matter what. So all the way to the point where on a Saturday morning when most stores are closed, I'm like, I need another server today. I need one today and I'm going to get one. And next thing I know, the only store that's open is this really cool server store. I forgot the name of it in Sylvania, Ohio. So here I am driving on a Saturday. I don't know if it's one hour or two hours away just to go to Sylvania, Ohio, the only place that's open that sells servers secondhand. And I go there to buy a server. I come out with like three of them <laughs> because they just have like Dell PowerEdge servers in bulk. And they're really good servers, and I got a really good deal on them. But what I didn't know is that these particular servers are very power-hungry. They're very loud. Um, I didn't do any research. They did serve the purpose I bought them for. But my electric bill went up a little bit, and um, that's one mistake I made there. I should have, um, you know, before I went to that store, I should have already known, like, which models had lower power usage, and I would have bought those instead. But I just wanted something right now, and that's not how you should do it. So know how much your power bill is or, or the electric cost in your area because you could live in an area where, you know, electricity is dirt cheap. You could be like someone in, Ohio, in uh, Hawaii, actually, which I've heard that it's very expensive out there. So if you buy a power-hungry server and you live in a place that, you know, has not or doesn't have cheap electricity, that's a problem. Um, know that going ahead, going into it. Also know if you have like a small apartment or something and you don't really have a data closet that something's going to be kind of out in the open and there's no way around it, then you probably want to research which servers are quieter versus louder. Um, so those are some things that you want to keep in mind. Generally speaking, look for lower power usage CPUs if that matters to you. 
But then again, if it's just going to go in a closet and electricity is dirt cheap, then it's fine. You just get whatever works. So those are some of my tips there. Just never buy on impulse. Um, use what you have. Uh, pay attention to power usage and just just take your time and do some research first. I know you're eager to get started and I'm sure nobody is impulsive as I am. Um, just take your time. Yes, it's uh, and it's it's not easy. There's so much research you can do to it. And you can then end up with analysis paralysis for sure when you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. One last thing I'll leave the audience with on this question is uh, have a look at the Dell Precision desktops. Yes, I know they're not servers technically, um, but anything is a server if it's serving something, right? Um, some of these Precision desktops, I forgot which model. I want to say the T6600, but don't quote me on that. You'll definitely need to Google this and, and fact check me on this. Um, they have some desktops that are for engineers, meaning that they have some Xeon processors in these, and they're not your normal desktop, but they're often cheap because they were just sold a lot. You could probably get one at least before the pandemic for like a hundred dollars, hundred US dollars, and you have like um, like a twelve core Xeon or something or more, um, and they have uh, low power usage, which is actually great. And there's nothing wrong with using a desktop. So have a look at those too, because you'd be surprised. Those Dell Precision towers. They could, depending on the model, they could be re, uh, resource friendly and they could also be very cheap. Absolutely. Now, the final question we have is something I think it, I don't know if it's going to be a show topic, but maybe at some point I, it's worth diving into for sure. What we have here is the um, how to a whole explainer on certs is what someone asked. And if you Google search this, you can find some visuals. It says, what is a certificate chain of trust? So that in parentheses, there's a few different explainers I've seen that show up pretty top of the search results for that. But your certificate chain of trust is the root certificate combined with your intermediary certificates, then with your end entity certificates. And essentially, it's sometimes confusing of why something trusts something. And Let's Encrypt has made this a lot easier. They're one of the, my favorite tools to use for setting up like reverse proxies because, yes, they offer wildcard certificates and they allow you to create these chains of trust. Now, this all starts with, though, how does your browser know to trust something? What is a self-signed certificate? So a lot of things, let's say we set up my TrueNAS server, it has a self-signed certificate. Well, that's no fun. You know, it's going to give you that stupid, you wish to proceed, click here, error that you're going to get. Right. So how does something know it trusts it? Well, it starts with, they like, have a root certificate, and then we're going to use Let's Encrypt, which is part of the intermediary, and Let's Encrypt has to do some validity. The, the root certificates are really a narrow group, unfortunately, group has gotten big over time but sometimes they fall out um what was that one is the the incident with the hong kong post i believe is uh one of the old I security incidents. remember that yeah that was yeah. on steve gibson's podcast i think steve gibson covers it if you if you steve gibson hong kong post i think if you search that you'll find a podcast where he dives into uh what happens when too many things get in the root trust but the root trust is a very narrow number of companies that we all hope are behaving properly and they offer the first level and that has to start with their root stores being within your let's say we're gonna use browsers as an example here but this actually works for software as well so once you have these root certificates on anything we have these common they don't change much then they have granted a level to the intermediaries and then the intermediaries then grant you and specifically let's talk about let's encrypt the ability to have certificates on things that they've verified you own that's encrypt can verify in different ways that you own a particular domain or that you can do a D what they refer to as a DNS challenge response. So there's, there's kind of a lot that goes into it. Maybe it's worth it to do in a show topic. It's just a really hard thing 
and Steve Gibson does have some episodes on this. It's a harder thing to do as a podcast, but I think it's a right. very worthwhile time for you to understand uh, how all these different certificate chains of trust work. Yeah, I think it's um, probably good for a video with a diagram or a flowchart or something on there. Yeah, and that's why I said if you that. Google like what is the certificate chain of trust, there's a lot of visual elements that you'll find coming up as part of the explainers they have to how these work. Now, this also does apply to software, and it's one of the things that breaks a little bit of the confusion because, for example, Linux packaging has to be signed in order to be installed. And that can create mm -hmm. confusion, obviously, because at first I wouldn't, you know, early days of Linux, what do you mean? This is all transported over HTTP. How do I know that someone doesn't man in the middle of my package updates and drop something in? Well, once again, even software is using this chain of trust and there's a root store on Debian or into Ubuntu and other distributions as well to verify that these packages were compiled with a certificate. So this goes into the way software is done. Uh, there's a lot based on this. There's a lot riding on this, I should say. So I, I want to at least give you the resource so you can start diving into it deeper. I don't know if it's something I, I will be as articulate enough to put together an episode in, in a audio format that's for it. But I, it's maybe something me or Jay will sit down and cover um that <laughs> I, uh, well we'll cover in, in a topic i i sorry um, i'm laughing and um yes uh is how i'm going to reply to my staff i will they just asked in my live stream about buying lunch <laughs> that is so that is awesome actually. they know i'm in a live stream so they posted as a question live stream and whether or not i would like lunch and so yay yes, <laughs> yes i would too actually um no i'm kidding um so you know I'm glad this question was brought up because it is the token home lab problem. Like if there was ever like some kind of preconceived notion about what a home labber is like, this is totally it. Like, like I have to think about this from the humorous level, right? Because obviously if you go to like a very popular online store and you get a message that says, are you sure you want to trust this site? You're probably not going to spend your money there because why would you do that? There obviously is some kind of an issue there and you don't want your credit card information in, in the clear, obviously. So, but on the in the home lab, I mean, if you have everything behind your firewall, it's not remotely accessible. And the worst thing you have to do is click the ignore button in your browser to get to your web app that's inside your network. It takes you all of one or two seconds to click that ignore button. But us, you know, we home lab people, we hate that. As easy as it is to click that ignore button, we can't stand the fact that it comes up. We can't stand the red right. X or whatever in the address bar. It drives us batty for no reason. It The world goes on. The world is totally happy with or without you having SSL in your LAN. But um, we really kind of hyper-focus on these sm small details. And it's and I'm not trying to under, you know, to, to make it seem like this isn't really a big deal because to us it kind of is. Because we want to do things the right way, even if doing the right way is more work than just ignoring the problem. I think it's really cool that we have that mindset because it just shows how passionate we are about home lab and i love the fact that people are actually worrying about this and the people that worry about it in their home lab are the same people that if they're not already employed professionally in it when they do become professionally employed they'll tell their employer that's a bad idea you're going to get owned if you do your search like that i know because i i do it in my home lab what's a home lab trust me you don't want to do that thing it's a bad thing and it's going to have problems because you're finding these things out as you build your own home lab. And it's just a really cool thing to uh, to walk through. Maybe we'll do an episode about it. Maybe we'll do a video about it. Um, we probably should do something at some point. So stay tuned. 
Yeah, I do know I, my videos on HA proxy are quite um, popular, and there's no reasons I did them. I knew this was just something that is really, it's probably even more targeted at HomeLab because there's not as many businesses we have using HA proxy. Uh, it's more something so a bunch of people internally. Most of the businesses are going to have commercial applications that are hosted in whatever web environments, and they have certificates and management for all of that. Um, I, of course, one thing I, I admit to being agitated by is the, the number of um, different systems we run into that don't use Let's Encrypt that still require us to buy search because they only offer that as a process, which has always annoyed me. But yeah, so maybe I wish there was more of it in a business world. I, I've, I've been puzzled by why, why some of them don't just embrace the world of Let's Encrypt. They just have an archaic way of doing it. They force you to use whatever certificate authority they choose. And that's just the end of the story for them. How much you want to bet that those companies that don't get with the program and adopt Let's Encrypt are probably still using Internet Explorer 6? Oh, God, yes, they are. So there's, <laughs> there's, it, I, I would complain more about them, but they're the least of my problems is that the, the right. rest of them all has to do with the archaic nature and terrible user interface. Like we have a plenty of other obstacles with uh, commercial software to overcome, but it's also, I see the other side of it. Uh, one of my clients asked one of the softwares they use is for carpet management would be an example. And it's really hard because it's not like there's a ton of, there's a lot of carpet companies out there that, you know, are selling carpet, but there's not that many companies that bother writing software. And there's probably not too many startups to go, you know what I'm going to solve in the industry. These carpet companies need a better tool. It's a lot right. to start writing some of these tools. So that's definitely something um, that I won't get too far off topic, but there's some challenges with commercial software. <laughs> there, there really is. But I think just, just a kind of a humorous side note, it's like, um, when companies don't get with a program, it, it, it's like you want to work for those companies because you're not going to learn the IT stuff you want to learn. I mean, I think some good metrics to use for whether or not you should work for a company is if um, the CTO uses the term MapQuest as a verb for asking their secretary to print instruct or, or driving directions, probably not a tech-focused company. If Internet Explorer is still used... Probably not a um, good tech company to work for. No judgment, just saying, trying to keep everybody safe from anxiety. I've uh, There's some pretty simple ways to know that a company doesn't take technology seriously. And, um, you know, not being on board with Let's Encrypt means that they probably just don't like it because it's free and free is bad because some companies are that way. Um, there's all kinds of mindsets out there, but, you know, that's why we do Home Lab because we know better. We want to learn the right way to do things and learn how things actually work. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why we do what we do. Um, I'll, so this kind of goes back to the firewall question. Someone asked the question of what is more secure servers on one network, but blocked by firewall from talking to each other or servers on different VLANs? Well, the firewall, if you're on a local subnet, the firewall, like as in if you're using PFSense, just as an example, but whatever your firewall software, it's managing the interconnections between VLANs. VLANs are also server subnets. If your server environment and you have like four or five servers around the same subnet, it doesn't go through the firewall. You're going to rely on the firewall for each individual server. So which is better, putting them on separate? Well, if you put them on separate subnets, you increase the distance between them because now unless the threat actor who gets a hold of a server has awareness to even look at those other subnets, then it technically might be more secure because there's nothing else on that subnet. The likelihood of them finding something on a subnet, if you also have it locked down, less likely. I mean, there's ways you can find it depending on how much they dig into it. So obviously separate subnets is going to be 
a really a little bit higher level of security, not like substantially night and day, but there's another level there, depending on how firewalled off you have the server. If you have the server wide open just because it's on that subnet, well, lateral movement becomes a little bit easier. If there's a flaw, they can exploit and gain privilege. But overall, it becomes impractical because this is where the question usually goes. Yeah, sure. If you're only setting up two or three servers, you want to put them on a separate subnet from each other. That's fine. When you deal with companies that have 70, 80, 90 servers, creating a different subnet for everything becomes kind of a little bit of a management problem and more of a it's it becomes impractical to manage at large scales. So it's kind of just figuring it out. And I've seen people tell me that you should everything should be 100 percent separate, but it also creates sometimes its own challenges on there. So you kind of figure out the balance of what's the risk factor on there, silo them off with principles of least privilege so they don't just talk to each other uh, ad hoc unless there's some need for them to talk to each other and go from there. Just you do the best you can. There's not anything that will 100% guarantee security, but at least put some effort towards it because you're going to make it harder. And it's, it doesn't take much effort. You'll find a lot of times, and we can go back all the way to Equifax. Equifax was one exposed external server that was on the same subnet as other servers. Then they lay, you know, started with Apache struts, but then they were able to leverage lateral movement because once they pivoted into the network, all the servers could talk to each other. So they really didn't have anything. It sounded like from my understanding of the debrief that stopped you from laterally moving between servers. So yeah, yeah. that is, that's an yeah. example of how not to do it. <laughs> that's exactly right. I think when it comes to networking, um, don't try to do too much at once. You will just create more work and frustration for yourself. For example, if you draw up a plan where you want 10 different VLANs for your for your stuff and you're just starting out with networking, please don't do that. Um, create one VLAN, okay? Just create one for one purpose and implement that one VLAN and, and take pride in yourself after accomplishing that. Don't try to promise yourself you're going to do like all these different things all at once. Start small, build yourself up. Okay, I want to learn VLANs. I'm going to create one VLAN a good way to do that in a good you know, use case is your IoT devices. That's a perfect thing to start with because you could create a VLAN just for that and that alone, and that's it. And yep. then you start understanding how VLANs and subnets work. And at that point, you might say to yourself, hmm, maybe I might want my streaming media devices to be on a different VLAN. Would that, you know, the broadcast domain is lower. So maybe that would be less interference on my network if I segregated that a certain kind of way. Then you walk through the use case and add more to it. I think that's the best way to do that. Just don't, you know, bite off more than you could chew at first. Yeah. And also when it comes to VLANs and subnets, um, the way I think about it, depending on the firewall software, everyone's different, depending on what the defaults are. But if I was on your system, and, you know, I was I hacked into your network and I'm just doing like a um, IP lookup. I want to know all the IP addresses you have. And I see, oh, it's a slash 24 network and you have like uh, 100 devices. But wait a minute. The default gateway has a different IP address scheme than the rest. Hmm, let me interrogate that. Then I go into that and then from there find all your other networks. It's not going to take me too much time. And the lateral movement will be easy because um, the routing tables are often built like automatically. So, and that's great because you don't want to have to like build in your routing table auto, you know, manually every single time you add a new network, you're, you know, typically TCP IP figures that out, but there's nothing stopping you from just going wherever you want to go as long as you're, you're able to access the gateway. Um, but the firewall typically is what stops you from moving from one VLAN to another, because in the firewall, you could say this VLAN 
is for desktop computers and that's all it's for. And my IoT VLAN should not be able to talk to my desktops. It can get out to the internet, but not, you know, no lateral movement there. Then you can start using firewalls to really kind of dial down how to access things. But don't go, like you said, so crazy that you're creating a VLAN for every server. That's just insane. Don't do that. Yeah, it becomes a little impractical. And uh, maybe an unpopular opinion, but your phone's an IoT device. This is a thing that comes up a lot. Uh, think about this from your standpoint, your phone. One, you probably already have your own distrust, whether it's made by Apple or Google. Those are pretty, the two predominant ones that, that are going to be the majority of what people are using. Your phone is also designed to be in hostile environments because, well, you wander around with it. And I know ideally guest networks on every open Wi-Fi should be isolated, but I know the reality of them not being. So your phone's kind of an expected to be on a hostile network. What I run into is a lot of people that go, hey, I want my phone on my secure, super secret network, um, but it needs to talk to my IoT devices because get my Chromecast or insert name of your favorite streaming device working. And my answer is just your phone belongs in the IoT world. It's If you wanted to have direct communication with all those IoT devices, it's an IoT device. It's in. I can't really think of reasons they want my phone on you know, the non IOT, I just leave it over there. To me, it's an IOT device. It's how it talks to my Chromecast. Um, it's my desktop. It's my more private applications that I'll keep locked down. So that's my thoughts on that. Just to throw that out there for a common question I get over and over again, Tom, why is your phone on an IOT? Yeah. I need to lock my phone on a separate secure network. I'm like, do you ever use public Wi-Fi? I mean, a lot of phones yeah. will auto connect to it. It's just phones, generally speaking, don't have ports open. So, right. And it's, it's literally a rat, like the biggest rabbit hole of home lab, in my opinion, to get into that becomes very frustrating. Like you, you come up with this awesome network plan and you find all these edge cases. For example, um, if you have a media network for all your, you know, Roku's and things like that for your streaming uh, video and things, then you have an IOT network for all your smart plugs and whatnot. Then you think about it. Wait a minute. My phone is an IOT device. But I also want to stream media as well. So do I consider my phone a media device, an IoT device? And my desktop, I want to, you know, cast to the TV sometimes. But my desktop is in the desktop VLAN. The Chromecast is in the IoT VLAN or the media VLAN. So now I have to create some edge cases here. And some devices could actually be considered different things. And that's when just like, oh, my gosh, what did I get myself into? And you have to really try to attack these problems. But to some of us, they're fun problems to solve. But that is the biggest rabbit hole of home lab, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is one of those things that people, they overcomplicate themselves to the point of detriment. But it's also, I think, a learning experience to do so. Because uh, if you yeah. work in uh, hospitals, we work with probably an easy example. Um, a lot of their networks are divided out and they throw the doctors, you know, their phones and everything are part of an IoT network that they're like, yeah, that's please don't put patient data on it. And by the way, you're on this network. Um, the only devices, if they do have, because some, some hospitals are a little bit more advanced, do have some different tablets that will be connected to a secure network, but they're also not allowed to do any type of web browsing. They use some type of kiosk style application. I know when I go to the doctor, I think it's cool that they have it because my check-in, they hand me a uh, tablet and I get to just touch buttons and it makes it so easy to check in. I actually like it. Um, I like I, it too. It, it feels advanced. I just swipe around, type in a few information. It's pre-filled out with some of my info in it. And how's your, how you feeling today, Mr. Lawrence? Uh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, my hand has no resilience for holding a pen anymore. 
Like I type everything. I rarely, I, I, I get anxious when I have to, you know, fill out a stack of paperwork. I'm thinking, really? Is 2021, why am I filling out a stack of paperwork? Mm -hmm. And just before I even get halfway through the first page, my hand hurts. But yeah. I could type like crazy. But I think it's like I'm losing, like I could still I've, write, obviously. I've I lost it. I don't do write it. anything. Um, <laughs> and one more, it hurts. It does. And one more thing I'll mention before we wrap this show up is mm -hmm. someone says, you know, you, you can also... Uh, use OpenVPN on your phone. You can even use this in WireGuard OpenVPN. You can use this inside your local network. There's one option. Or what's even might be even simpler is if your phone needs access to something like you need to be able to copy files back and forth, the overlay networks like Zero Tier, for example, do work on your phone. And actually, so does Nebula and I think Tailscale. I'm pretty sure they have a phone app too. Uh, but yeah, the overlay network option on your phone is another option where you can create a limited scope where you can say, hey, here's my NAS server that is on a secure network and I want my phone to specifically have a limited access so I can transfer photos from my phone to my NAS without having to put your phone on the other network. It's an IoT device with limited access via one of those overlay networks uh, to that. So just another thought that you can do on there. So how about an SSH jump box on a Raspberry Pi? That there you, you go. SSH jump box that was mentioned in here as well. Uh, so you can SSH to it. So hopefully that clears that. Oh, uh, I think this person may have asked this before, but it recommended home lamp switches with good VLAN support. Is I there's a reason we have a, an episode just on Unify. Unify is wildly popular in the home lab. I think it's a great product for not only the home lab but for a lot of the small business networks. It is one of the easiest ones to manage VLANs hands down. Uh, if you like something a little bit cheaper but also has some more complexities, you can look at Mikrotik. Um, you, what you save in money, you're going to pay in time learning it. Maybe you like their interface. I don't care for it much, but it's a functional. You can get things done once you get over the learning curve. Um, the Netgear are a popular choice. One of the challenges across and a video I'm actually going to work on at some point is just showing all the interfaces to like five different switches and having people scratch their head going, why do they all implement everything differently? Welcome to Switch World, where no, there's not an absolute consistency. The only consistency that I'll mention in a runner-up, if you're also budget-minded, is TP-Link. I've done a review on them. I've never used TP-Link and don't know if I would in a commercial environment, but uh, TP-Link just copy-pasted the UI the UI from Ubiquity. It's as simple as that. I even make that comment and show side-by-side. -side. It's unbelievable how much TP-Link looks like Unify. So both of them share an ease of use when it comes to deploying VLANs with just doing pull-downs instead of... It's not that it's hard. It's figuring out the nuance of how to tag and untag ports. Great. If you're going to network engineering, take some time to learn it. Highly recommended. If you're going, I just want some VLANs and need to get the, some things working since so I have a you know, another project I work on having a pull down and just putting a VLAN on a port through a web interface way easier than dealing with the tagging, untagging and grasping all those concepts. So I've covered, I've covered both. If you look up, I have a video I did on Mikrotik and their switch OS. I have a video I did on edge and their edge OS, which is another ubiquity product to show how VLANs are done. So yeah, it's uh is a challenge. And uh, someone did ask, and the answer is yes, TP-Link is a Chinese company. So uh, use at your own risk. Uh, there's some fuzziness that I, I will completely be upfront about that we just don't know when they produce their software. By the way, none of it's open source. So uh, all of it's kind of use at your own risk on that. Open source switches, hey, it's a pipe dream. They, they kind of exist. I don't know where we're at with that in the world. Um, not not an, not in a production level. That's um, I mean, it is, oddly, there's open source in the enterprise level of switches. There's less open source in the uh, um, there, you you can actually build a switch out of uh, a few different open source products. That's a little bit more complicated and 
most of the equipment other than buying it used on eBay is not as budget oriented. So that'll send us down a different rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, or you could just get like a, you know, Debian desktop with a bunch of PCI Express slots and gigabit NICs, and then just, you know, make your own switch essentially. Um, and if you really want to go down that rabbit hole. So technically, yeah, an open source switch does exist. Install Debian or some kind of Linux on a device and, you know, have, have fun. Um, but, but it's going to be a little frustrating. Yeah. Yep. 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 So definitely, um, yeah, dust off those CCNA manuals, as someone said in there for sure. Uh, oh, one last question. How do do VPNs? I, I have a VPN versus um, like zero tier. I'd break down the comparisons of how they're alike and how they're different. So I, I've broken those down. It's just a complete, it's a different architectural design. And I've got, if you look for overlay networks and Nebula on my channel, I've got diagrams to kind of break down the different use cases and how they connect. So hopefully that answers that. So yeah. All right. Um, I think that's it. The um, seeing any, uh, I God, this, this one, I will, uh, one last, last one, last one, last mm -hmm. one. So I will say this cause I do have to go, but the single sign on solutions for home lab. I don't think there's anything great out there. I know C2 no. identity, which is a Synology product is trying to come up with some stuff. I know, you know, the popular ones, Google offers single sign-on to lots of applications. Um, obviously, Microsoft, the elephant in the room. There's plenty of other, you know, commercial solutions out there. But I don't know if any of them are easy solutions for home users to implement. Uh, there's not really a great, and I don't expect a one to be there anytime soon for identity management. I mean, you can do some stuff on Synology for it. But, yeah, that's, that's a... Uh, I don't know. There's no easy. I wish it was a better answer uh, for central identity management. Synology has some stuff out there, but it's kind of proprietary Synology. Uh, in everyone, someone pointed out like free IPA, free radius, and all these different tools you can tie together, but none of them, even in the Linux world, they're, they're not smooth. Would you agree with that, Jay? Yeah, I would. It's just one of those things where you have to understand that even in corporate IT, this is problematic and not very straightforward. And it might seem that it's straightforward because, you know, if you work at a company and you have a single sign-on, you're like, wow, this is cool. But you don't know how many edge cases, quirks, custom tweaks, and things went into that behind the scenes that you may not have been there for when they were designing it. And I have been in a, in you know, a couple of times responsible for implementing this at companies. I'm telling you, there's a lot of edge cases here. So it might look like it's something that we have because, they do, you know, the administrators did their due diligence in setting it up, but you are really asking for a rabbit hole at that point because you could set up your own LDAP server and try to set up roaming profiles, which is not always going to work well, especially with permissions. And you're going to have some apps that are just not going to tie into that anyway, that you have to implement something. Um, it's, it's doable, but how much, how important is it to you and how much time do you have? Yeah, it's not, there's not anything I've seen that's beautifully turnkey. There's a bunch of other projects out there. Someone's probably going to throw in the comments. I know some exist, as I said, beautiful and turnkey. There's a, there's a qualifier in there. It's not that they don't exist at all. They don't exist in the most usable formats. That's probably the best way to say it. So <laughs> I, I would actually say that turnkey does exist on the side of the SSO solution. 
But the apps that you're tying into it are where you fall into a problem because I would use something like, um, I forgot the name of this one, where it would say this app is supported. And it was actually LastPass in this example um, for the company. I'm not saying LastPass would be popular here, but it's just an example mm -hmm. where, oh, it's supported. Great. So I'll have single sign-on. No, it's supported in the sense that we have an icon for it and you could put the icon on the thing. Um, that's that's it. It's it's actually not supported. And then you'll be manually creating users anyway. And then some of my, my personal favorite is when it is fully supported or so you think and you create a user on one and then the app works and you can log in. But then it doesn't support deleting an account from that app. So if you delete an account, then you'll have hanging accounts, but they don't tell you this when they're selling you a solution for SSO. Yes, we support all these apps. Support, what kind of support are we talking about? Um, having just the ability to put an icon on a screen, in my opinion, doesn't constitute support. And then you run into the edge cases based on the applications. That's where you really run into a problem. Um, there's just varying levels of support for things, and it's not going to be con as consistent as you want it, even in its most uh, perfect form. So just keep that in mind. All right. And uh think that's it. I mean, I, I'm positive we could go on forever, um, but we don't yep. have forever to go on. <laughs> I, I would go on for another hour if I if I could, believe me. Yeah. Oh, uh, I will add one last thing. To, I'm just going to, as a statement. So mm -hmm. we did our last episode on SSH keys. We didn't mention this, but for those of you that created your keys without passwords, yes is the answer to, can you add a password to an existing SSH key? Uh, look up change password on SSH key, and it's the same process. But if there's no password, the changing of the password is actually the adding of a password. So you don't actually have to rekey everything to do that. I just wanted to bring it up from our last show. Um, someone had asked me, and I was like, I didn't know the answer. And Jay says, I don't know either. But it turns out we, we uh, you can. You can just simply add a password to your existing keys. So so hopefully that um, helps with anyone who's trying to follow our guidelines of, yes, you should have a password on SSH keys. But if you didn't, don't right. worry. If you have 200 systems with your key in it, before you start replacing all that key, you can change the private site key to add a password. So, <laughs> yep. yep. And one last thing I'll mention on my end, um, this, is, this is it for me. Someone brought up, you know, SSO or federation. It's not the same thing. And um, I, I agree. And I know that it's yeah. sometimes I keep the explanation a little um, short, but sometimes things are assumed. You know, someone's asking about SSO, but they're also talking about account creation. They kind of assume that everything is related, even when it's not. Um, one's for logging in, and then you have another service to sync your accounts. But you still run into a problem no matter what, where, you know, you you lock down a user account, but for some reason, they could still access the app. Why? Well, there's edge cases, no matter which way you look at it. And some features that aren't related in a specific technology are assumed when someone wants to have a solution, they're really wanting all the things all at once. Um, so yeah. there's just so much to it. Um, again, what's your time worth? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Well, thanks again for everyone who joined us for this episode. Uh, please hit our website, thehomelab.show, so you can contact us there, send the questions, get them all compiled. We love doing these Q&A episodes. And uh, we'll see you next time. And uh, are we recording yeah. next week, Jay? I think we said yes. I think so. Yeah, okay. I'm pretty sure. Yep. It falls on a Wednesday. It's the in-between the holidays. But, uh, you know, talking on a podcast is, can we even call this a job? <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> it's, just really a hobby like that, it's just yeah. a hobby that happens to work out well. Yeah, it's a hobby that works out well. So yeah, we'll we'll continue our hobby that works out well at eleven 
EST on Wednesday next week. So thank you very much for everyone who joined. Awesome. Hit that like button, subscribe button, or if you're, you'll see a podcast, just leave us a review somewhere and much appreciated. Thanks. Yep.